0: I want to tell you a story about a very unusual wedding banquet. This one actually happened in June of 1990, and it was printed in the Boston Globe. Apparently a couple who were engaged to be married went, and they made arrangements for their reception. They went down to the downtown Hyatt Hotel in Boston, planned out everything, best food, best flowers, got it all laid out. They were both very excited, the bride-to-be especially so. The bill came to $13,000. Many of you go eek, especially those of you with daughters who are coming in uh, up to the age of, uh, of being married. It might scare you just a little bit. They got it all planned out. They went home. They continued to make arrangements. They got the wedding announcements together, got them in the mail, and mailed them. About the time that the wedding announcements hit the mailboxes of those who were invited, the groom-to-be got cold feet. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, ladies, you can be mad right now if you want to. I I know what's in there, let it out. So he backed out. She was furious. So she goes back downtown, speaks to the lady at the Hyatt Hotel and says, hey, my fiance backed out, I, I need to cancel this. And the manager said, I am so sorry, but if you have read in your contract, I can only refund $1,300 of your money. Fortunately, she had only paid half as a deposit, but that's still $6,500, and I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money for me. So she had a decision to make. I can recoup $1,300 and count my losses, or I can go on and have the party. Not as a wedding party, but just as a big bash. So she thought about it. And this is the unusual idea she came up with. You see, about 10 years prior, she herself had been homeless, living on the streets of Boston. And so she decided, now that she was back on her feet and doing well and had saved up a sizable nest egg, that she would like to do something special for the down-and-out folks of Boston's inner city. So she decided to go through with the party. But she wouldn't invite her friends, her family, and her, her guests of honor. She was going to invite the homeless, the poor, the broken. And she was going to offer them one night of partying, a night like they had never, ever known before. Let me read you a little bit from uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and I will plug that book because I'm going to read several excerpts. If you've never read it, you're missing out. It's an awesome book. Um, He goes on to describe what happened. By the way, I think it was very uh, funny that the first thing she did was to change the menu from whatever the meat they had previously ordered to boneless chicken in honor of the fiancé who backed out of the wedding. (laughs) Yeah, she got her shot in there, didn't she? <laughs> and so the story continues. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. That warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead of chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by, cr- by crutches and aluminum walkers, bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalk outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. What that lady did, folks, is exactly what God has done for you and I. She extended, she made an offer of grace. Grace. She made an offer of grace. This is exactly what God is doing. He extends grace the same way to you and I who are broken and poor spiritually, who are undeserving. There's no way we can earn it. There's no way we can merit it. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to merit the grace of God, and yet he gives it freely. This is exactly what she did. I'm going to be reading this morning from Titus. Chapter 3, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, that's fine. Titus chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 7. Titus 3, 3 through 7. By the way, I think Beth was afraid I would actually reveal my title, so I'm going to. (laughs) The title of today's sermon is Double Sinks, Laundry Shoots, Stories of Amazing Grace. I know that makes absolutely no sense to any of you, but hang on. That's what they call a teaser, by the way. At one time, Paul says, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now get this. Verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Do you get that? He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, that's grace. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us. How? Generously. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, And verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs with him, having the hope of eternal life. That's what's so amazing about grace. You know, the grace of God is very difficult to define. And throughout the history of Christianity, there's been many theologians who have attempted to define it and have done so. And it's necessary. But oftentimes... It results in a very scholarly and academic approach to grace that, although necessary and important, it does not fulfill, it does not meet or satisfy the deep longings of the human heart. So this morning, I would like to give you some textbook definitions of grace, but I would like to share some stories. I want to share some stories, and we'll get to that in a minute. What is grace? Grace is the undeserved favor of God. The undeserved favor of God. It means that God deals with his people not on the basis of our merit or worthiness. Rather, he deals with them on the basis of his goodness and generosity. See, grace means that God supplies us with undeserved favors. Yancey says in this book, it means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Do you know what that means? It means that on your very best spiritual day, when you have crossed every T and you have dotted every I, you have done nothing to make God love you any more or any less. Because that's already been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. His grace he pours out unto us is undeserved. It's unmerited. We cannot earn it. You see, grace is God's gift to humanity. His grace is His gift to sinful man. One of the best ways I know to, uh, to explain this process of God giving grace as a gift is to think about Christmas time. It's, it's interesting that at Christmas, when I was a child, I don't care what kind of a stinker I had been. And if you want to talk to my mother later, she can tell you that I could be a stinker. If you want to talk to Beth, she can tell you that I can still be that way. And that doesn't matter if I had just been a horrible student that year. If I had been fighting with my brothers, and I usually did. It didn't mean uh, that if I had not done my chores. or I mean if I had been a lousy, rotten kid. That year, on Christmas morning, actually we celebrated it on Christmas night. So on Christmas Eve, when the presents were there around the tree and my name was called, I never once did this. Oh, mother and father, I don't feel worthy of my Christmas presents this year. I don't think I should receive them. Maybe you should give them to some poor, deserving kids in inner city Detroit who are much more needy than I. I've got plenty. I don't need that. Yeah, right. Have your kids ever done that? No. What do we do at Christmas time? Let me at it, right? And by the way, ladies, you crack me up how you just tend to, you know, take the wrapper off and save the bow and stuff. It never happened when I was a kid. I just destroyed the wrapping paper. I didn't care. I could not wait to get to the present and I never gave it a thought that maybe I didn't deserve this gift. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that it is by grace we are saved through faith. It is the gift of God. We get so hung up, folks. Church, we get so hung up in trying to earn the favor of God. You can't because then it wouldn't be grace. Grace is that gift at Christmas time that God just holds out to us and says, come and take it, receive it. I know you don't deserve it, but I want you to have it anyway. And by the way, though we don't deserve the grace of God, we are worth it. I do not like a very popular theology in the church where we think of ourselves as a worm, where we think of ourselves as a groveling person who is worthless and unworthy of God's love. If you were that person, then certainly God doesn't see you that way. If you were unworthy, why would he have died for you? If you were unworthy of his love, you were worth it to him. And that's why he did it. So yeah, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But because he thinks you are worth it, he saves you. He offers you grace. Another story that might help describe grace a little bit. I was counseling with someone, by the the way, I have their permission, but I will change her name. So this is a fictitious name. I don't think that's lying, is it? That's okay, God's grace will cover that. (laughs) I was counseling with Lynn, and she told me of a very tragic childhood experience. She told me of of, of a childhood that was filled with fear, a childhood that was filled with, well, that was loveless. A childhood where she was never, never felt safe, never felt secure. Her father was a drug dealer and spent most of her childhood days in and out of prison. He would just show up and she would know that he's back. She was uh, terrified of him, lived in constant fear of him. Very horrible childhood experience. At the age of 16, her father was murdered. A terrible, terrible, sad story. The only bright spot in Lynn's childhood experience were the times that her mother would take her to her grandparents' home. She was so close to her grandmother, and she was so in love with her grandmother. Not in a crazy way, but just loved her. And her grandmother loved her in return. She poured out Her love and her grace and her favor, she made her feel special. She made uh, Lynn feel safe. She made Lynn feel secure. In that home as a child, uh, that's the only memories of her childhood that are pleasant, that make her feel whole. That's all she has to cling to. And oddly enough, the only thing that she remembers about that house now is that it had a double sink in the kitchen and a laundry chute in the bathroom. As she grew into adulthood and was married, her and her husband went out looking for their first home. She said, I remember asking God, I need to find a place that I can feel safe again. I need to find somewhere to live where I can feel whole, where I can feel healed, where I can feel loved. The very first house they looked at is the house that they live in to this day. And guess what? It had double sinks and a laundry chute. You might think, Jeff, that's just kind of a weird story. Think about it. That's grace. That's God's grace. Folks, if the God who created this universe is concerned enough about one individual to guide her to a home that has a double sink and a laundry chute just so she could feel loved, just so she could feel secure, that's grace. That's grace. That's wonderful, beautiful grace. There's an obvious danger, however, of abusing God's grace. Two extremes: one is legalism, the other is license. Legalism takes and makes law or rules and regulations where grace is supposed to reign. It's a form of self-righteousness. It's a form of it's a very works-oriented and performance-based religiosity. It's not grace at all. It's an abuse of grace. Then there's the other extreme. There's license. License says, "Woo! if God's grace is sufficient, if God pours out his grace on me and I don't do anything to deserve it, then can't I just live my life the way I want to, sin, have a good time? Isn't God going to love me and forgive me anyway? That is equally abusive of the grace of God. Matter of fact, there was two churches who exemplified this. One was the church at Galatia, the other was the church of Corinth. Paul wrote about about this to us. He says that in Galatia, in the church there, they embraced a hybrid, kind of a mongrel, a mutation of law and grace. And it resulted in something that was neither. And basically, what Paul says to the Galatians is hey, if grace through faith plus nothing at all saved you, then isn't it logical that grace plus faith? or grace through faith plus nothing, it will also keep you. You see, the Galatians were attempting now to preserve the righteous standing and favor they had with God that was given to them through grace. Now they're trying to preserve it by being obedient, by working, by mixing the law into grace and coming up with this mutated monster, so to speak, that wasn't grace at all. Paul says to them, in chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, that's grace, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Church, I'll ask you the same question. Having begun your Christian experience in grace through faith, are you now attempting to attain the goal through human effort? If you are, you're missing out on the beauty of grace. And if you are, you're probably a very frustrated and unhappy Christian. Because as Stacy's saying, we can't do it. We can't measure up to the standard that God has set. You know what standard God has set for us? Perfection. Matthew 5, 8. Be you therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who here has met that standard? Would you raise your hand? Nobody. Well, if Jesus commands us to be perfect and none of us are there yet, then how are we going to make it? How are we going to get to heaven for crying out loud? Keep working harder? Keep plugging away? You see, what Jesus was in fact saying is, you can't do it. Only I can And so when Jesus died on the cross as the perfect, willing sacrifice for your sins and mine, he met that standard. He was without sin. He was perfect. And so the only way you can be pleasing to God is through a a relationship, through a union with Jesus Christ, and so that his perfection covers you. That's the only way it works. The Corinthians took the other side. They had a very cheap view of God's grace. This resulted in misusing God's grace as a means of self-indulgence. They were a very sinful and shallow people. But Paul says in Titus, the same book we're reading this morning, if if you still have your your Bible open there, you can flip back into chapter 2. And this is what he says in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now notice this. It teaches us to say no. What teaches us to say no? The grace of God that has appeared to all men. It, grace, teaches us to do what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Listen, church, it's time that we stop trying to do it on our own. It's time that we stop trying to cross the T's and dot the I's and be perfect. It's time that we stop serving. Pastor, will kick my rear end for saying this, but hear me out. It's time that we quit serving if, if our motivation for serving is to try to score brownie points with God. The motive's not right. It's not gonna work. It's time that we understand that it's his grace that saved us that same Christmas present grace, that same double sink and laundry chute grace, that grace as believers, that teaches us to say no to the things of this world that we need to say no to. It's not about condemnation, and it's not about judgment, and it's not about criticism, and it's not about a dirty, mean, critical spirit towards those who fall. It's about grace, and it's about receiving that grace so that you can extend it out to someone else. Because the only way, the only way I can look at some folks that I have counseled who tell me some of the horrible things they did, and not just want to say, get out of here, you make me feel dirty, is to understand that I have received God's grace the same way they will. I don't deserve it, neither do they. I can't be perfect, neither can they. And it's only when I can understand that grace comes to me that way, that's the only time, the only way I can extend that grace to somebody else. It's a cheap view of God's grace. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. I'm going to quickly just kind of paraphrase. There's the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. We've always called it the prodigal son. But it's interesting because Jesus teaches these three parables in in sequential order, one right after the other, in response to something that the Pharisees said. They said, this guy continually welcomes sinners. What's wrong with him? Doesn't he get it? So Jesus tells these three parables. There was a man who lost one sheep. He had a hundred. He left the 99 behind and went out in search for the one until he found it and he came back rejoicing that he had found the one. The lost coin. There's a woman who frantically searches. She had 10 coins and lost one of them. She sweeps the house, looks under every box, looks in every nook and cranny until she finds the one lost coin and then she rejoices. And then you know the prodigal son. He says... He says to his father, I want out of here. I want my money and I'm gone. The father gives him his inheritance. The boy wanders away and wastes his money. And then finally one day he wakes up and says, I'm hungry and I'm cold. I want to go home. And when he comes home, his father sees him coming down the road, runs to him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. Gets out the fatted calf and butchers it and throws the biggest party that they'd seen around there in a long time. What are those three stories describing God's grace? Who are the characters in the story? What is Jesus teaching us about God in these parables or in these stories? You see, once we were his very valued and prized possessions and we left and he lost us. He then seeks us out and he pursues us. Do you understand that? You're not here today because you're pursuing God. You're here today because he's pursuing you. It thrills his heart when he has us back again. And heaven throws a big party. You see, God is the diligent, faithful shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep. It's God who is that frantic woman who searches diligently for the one lost coin. And it is God who is the heart-sick father waiting for his wayward son's return. He's a loving and gracious God, and he gives us the double sinks and the laundry chute home just so we can experience his grace and his love. I want to read you an excerpt from Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, that I think illustrates this perfectly. And I'll hurry. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you! She screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will ever look for her. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she'd ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that made her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decided. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair and all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears. Nobody would mistake her for a child. And after a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much. And all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Something jolts the synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind. May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees blossom at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself. Pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home is eating better than I do now. Now she's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. God, why did I, I'm sorry, three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says this, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus your way and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? So shouldn't she have waited another day or until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she's preparing Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minute, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chair bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great-aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers, her dad breaks in. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet for you at home. That's grace. Folks, that's a story of grace. That is exactly who God is. He's that father. He's that heart-sick father who looked down the road for his wayward son. His heartbreaking. He's that woman who searches frantically for the lost coin. He's the shepherd who leaves 99 to go look for the one. This is who God is. We have a crazy mixed up idea about God. Some of it formed by our childhood experiences. Some of it formed by improper theology. God is not a mean ogre. God is not a vindictive judge. He's the God of grace. He is a heart sick father who longs for you to come home. That's who God is. How do you know that Jeff? Because that's who Jesus declared him to be. If you believe in Jesus, then you're going to have to challenge your concept of God if that is not what your God looks like, because that is the God that Jesus revealed. Where are you in the story of grace? Have you received it freely, no strings attached, like a child on Christmas morning? Or are you like the Galatians? You started out with grace, but ended up with some sort of mutation, some sort of hybrid that doesn't even now remotely resemble the beauty of true grace? Or are you like the Corinthians who who have cheapened grace by embracing an easy believism which dilutes the requirements of repentance and ignores the demands and the cost of following Jesus? That's not grace either. But the beautiful the beautiful story is this, or the beautiful truth of the story is this. Wherever you are on that journey, that's where Jesus wants to meet you, right there, right where you are, just as you are. You don't have to dress up, pretty up, and fix it up. He'll take care of that. He just wants to meet you right where you are. but stand. Like for everyone, if they would, just bow their heads for a minute. I don't know where you are this morning, but God does. I don't know if you have a view of God that is other than the one Jesus has revealed. If you do, I challenge you to rethink your God and to quit worshiping a false one. A God of judgment and vindication or vindictiveness. A God of revenge and hatred. And I challenge you this morning to receive his grace like a kid at Christmas time with joy, with enthusiasm. And it takes a certain amount of humility to do that. So this morning, as Don plays through his song, if If the Spirit of God has touched your heart and you want to respond, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Kneel down right here. Somebody will come and pray with you. And settle this thing. Your heart-sick Father is waiting for your return this morning. He will run to meet you. He will throw His arms around you and embrace you. That's grace. A faithful Father, enduring friend, your tender mercy. verse, everybody would just bow your heads again, keep it bowed just for another minute, I want to ask you know maybe maybe the Lord is speaking to you this morning and you just want someone to pray for you, not necessarily uh, well actually we will not come out to where you're at we we won't embarrass you in any way but if the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning and you say Jeff see myself in that story, and I see Jesus, and I see God in a different way now, and I want, I want his grace. If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand quickly and put it down. There's one thing Anyone else? Just raise them up high. All right, I'm going to pray, and then Don will sing one more verse, and we'll give you another opportunity to Father, for the ones who raised their hands this morning, who are aware of where they are in the story of grace, who recognize that you are their loving and heartsick Father waiting for their return, I ask you, Lord, to help them this morning to humble themselves as a child at Christmas time and receive your gift, the gift of grace, which will teach them to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and desires, which will teach them to walk the way of the cross. Speak this morning, I pray, as Don sings in Christ's name.